There we go. All right. <clears throat> okay. Well, uh, we have been over the last uh, three weeks struggling to get through this chapter. <laughs> uh, I think uh, two weeks ago uh, we had kind of a shorter lesson because we were uh, we spent more time in prayer. We just had a lot of things to pray about that day, and so we spent quite a bit of time in prayer, and we got started a little late and and then you all made me work so hard on a couple points that we just uh, we didn't get very far which is fine I don't mind that uh, and, uh, and then of course last week we started and we got in about five or ten minutes into the lesson and then they came in and told us they're going to shut all the power down and uh, so as we're sitting here today in the luxury of air conditioning and light just uh, remember what a blessing it is to have that. Uh, but uh, so our, our lesson last week was cut short. And so as I was preparing uh, this week, and of course, most of my preparation was already done. But as I was going back over the lesson and thinking again about the lesson, I was just thinking, well, Lord, are you, you know, is there some reason why you're not letting us make progress? Is there some other tack you want us to take in the direction I was? And I think to some degree there was. And so. Uh, I had an opportunity to kind of think through the lesson and uh, and take a little bit different approach to it than I was originally planning on taking. So uh, I won't go into all the details of that at this point. But um, uh, at any rate, I think the Lord kind of directed through that and I'm kind of encouraged about that. But uh, so let's pick it up and reread the passage we looked at last week. And last week in the time that we did have before they turned the lights off on us, we basically did some review, and so I'm not going to spend a lot of time in review today. We'll just maybe do a little bit just to kind of get our bearings, but but we have a lot to cover, and so uh, so that's what we'll try to do. But but let's pick up the story in verse 12 and uh, and uh, chapter 37, and we'll read down through verse 36, and we'll see if the Lord will let us get through this whole passage today. <clears throat> so it starts out uh, after uh, Joseph has had his dreams and told his dreams to his brother and his parents, and etc. Uh, then we pick up the story in verse 12. It says, Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said, I will go. Then he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock, and bring, back, uh, bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. A man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, What are you looking for? He said, I am looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said, They've moved on from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dotham. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dotham. When they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then, come, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say, A wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, Let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him. 
so he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to their to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal, and as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to, his, to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for, our brother, uh, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some of the Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph to Egypt. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and daughters arose to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, Surely I will go down to Shoal in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Okay? Well, as I said, uh, in the verses that we looked at uh uh, earlier, uh, verses one through eleven that we've looked, with, excuse me, we looked at about two or three weeks ago. Uh, we have the we have that unfolding story of Joseph and his dreams. He's working out in the field, and we saw that he was working as a uh, uh, basically a, just as a shepherd. And apparently, uh, from the way the Hebrews constructed there, it appears that he was kind of he wasn't he wasn't top dog on the totem pole at all. He was kind of just serving his brothers and working. Uh, under the direction of his brothers. Uh, and then he brings back that evil report that we read about, about his brothers. He kind of tattles, if you want to put it that way. I don't know if that's exactly what was going on. Uh, but the result of all of that and the result of Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph uh, uh, and his love for Joseph, Joseph ultimately finally is promoted. And so as this story unfolds, as we did talk about just briefly last week before they turned the power off on us, uh, Joseph is basically promoted and the next time we see him here in the part of the passage that we read today he's been elevated from just being kind of one of the guys out there in the field helping the other brothers shepherd the flock he's now dad's right hand man okay and he's been given this this very beautiful tunic this I call it a regal tunic because I don't know any better easy way to describe it but it's just this beautiful tunic that is beautifully adorned and beautifully colored 
uh, and is emblematic of his promotion. It's emblematic not only of his father's love, but also suggests to the entire family that Joseph is really kind of the, the heir in line to the position of patriarch in the clan. So it's, it's dad's way of kind of signaling that, that I, I'm thinking I'm going to pass all this responsibility on to Joseph, which means he's going to bypass uh, his ten older brothers. And so that, of course, arouses a great deal of jealousy. And we read about that and how hostile his brothers felt towards him and that they were unable to speak to him even on friendly terms. So whenever he's around his brothers, he's getting either the cold shoulder or he's uh, getting demeaning remarks or, or harsh remarks or whatever. And so this is kind of the family dynamic that's going on. And it's in this context then that the story that we look at today unfolds. And of course, we're probably all familiar with the story and we're familiar with the, the uh, conclusion of the end of the story. Now, what I'd like to do today in, in the time that we have is as we look at this story, I'd like to just take a, a little bit of time, a brief bit of time to look at the four primary characters in the story today. OK, so who would they be? Who are the five, four primary characters in this story? Okay, Reuben and Judah and obviously Joseph. And then who would be the other? Jacob. Okay, Uh, so those are the four primary characters. And I'd like to take some time just to think a little bit about those four characters. And uh, there's some lessons we can learn from a couple of them. And a couple of them we just need to kind of be aware of what happens here in the story because it will have a bearing on things that unfold later in the story and so we need to be familiar with that. So I'd like to do that is just look at those four characters and then what I'd like to do is just kind of back out and just kind of look at the whole panorama, if you will. Just kind of look at the whole story and ask ourselves what really can we learn from this? Okay? And uh, so, uh, first of all, we, the first person we really encounter here in the story uh, in, in, to much degree is, is uh, Jacob, but I'll save him till later. And then we encounter Joseph. Now, Jacob has called Joseph and, and told Joseph to, uh, to go on this mission. He's going to send him on this, uh, on this uh, emiss- uh, uh, he's going to send him as an emissary to his brothers to check on the welfare of his brothers and to check on the welfare of the flock and to bring word back. And uh, last week, I, I think, I, I, as I recall, we had such a short lesson, I don't remember what I said, but, uh, but I think I pointed out if you were there, if you were there when Jacob, knowing what you know now, when Jacob was about to send Joseph off to his brothers, what would you have done? You know, We'll think some more about that in a few minutes. But... One of the things that's interesting in this chapter, this entire chapter, which is predominantly about Joseph, right? I mean, we have these other characters, but it all relates to Joseph and Joseph's experience in life. One of the things that's interesting is we only have in the entire chapter where we have Reuben talking, we have have Judah talking, we have the brothers talking, we have Jacob talking, we have them all talking. But in the entire chapter, uh, or excuse me, the entire passage earlier in the chapter, we have some more. But from the, the point we're looking at today, these verses we're looking at today, with everybody that's got so much to say, 
only three words are recorded of Joseph. What does he say? Okay. Here I am or I will go. Okay. And, and I find that interesting that the Holy Spirit, as he, as he sets this, this narrative before us, as he sets this story before us, the only thing really, and you know, I'd like to know what Joseph said to his brothers when he was being thrown in the pit. Actually, we have a little bit of a clue that comes out later. But the passage itself doesn't tell us what he said to his brothers when he was being thrown in the pit or when he was being sold into slavery uh, or as he was being drugged by the Midianites down to Egypt. You know, We're not told of what he says in any of those circumstances, but we are told that when his father said, Joseph, I want you to go and check on your brothers and the flock and come back, he just simply says, I will go. And I think the reason for that, the reason the Holy Spirit takes the time, if you will, to point that out to us is because it is actually reflective of something about Joseph. What, what does that reflect about Joseph? What does that reveal to us about Joseph that will become even more clear as we go on through the story of Joseph? Okay. Pardon? He's obedient. Okay. He's eager to please his father. He, is, he, he sees himself in a position of submission to authority. And he has no problem with that. And, and of course, when we look at it here, we go, well, of course. I mean, uh, there's tremendous advantage for him here to submit to his father. If he, you know, if he submits to his father uh, in this context and in this environment, then he has a great deal to gain from it. He's pleasing his father. His father's pleased with him. You know, he may end up, in, he may end up getting to be the kind of the, the chief of the entire clan when his father passes that responsibility on. And so it appears we could say, well, Joseph submits to authority here because he's got a lot to gain from it. But what we discover about Joseph as we go through the story is that this is, this is part of Joseph's bedrock character. Because we discover about Joseph that he not only submits to authority in a situation like this where it's reasonable and it's to be expected and there's much to be gained from it. But we're also going to see that he submits to authority when he's a slave. And he submits to authority when he's in the dungeon. And he submits to authority when he's at Pharaoh's right hand. And so what we, what we come to see about Joseph, and, and I think the Holy Spirit's just kind of given us a little flag here to stick in the ground and then as we go on through the other the rest of the story we'll see more flags like this and pretty soon we're going to see this pattern that Joseph has this character quality about him that he sees himself in submission to authority not because authority is always just and right but because he's under the authority of God so when we get to that whole story about Potiphar's wife and he has an opportunity there not to submit to authority. His argument to Potiphar's wife is, how can I do this? You know, this would be dishonoring to God. And this would be dishonoring to the man to whom I, the man who's, who's entrusted me with so much. And so what we find out about Joseph is he has this tremendous quality about him. That whenever he's in a position with authorities over him, he's really looking beyond that authority. 
and he's looking to God. Now, I don't know how he learned that, and I don't know where he learned it. He certainly must have learned some of that from his father. Uh, but, but it's obvious in his life that, that's, that that has become, or certainly is becoming, a quality of his life. And so it's something, uh, it's something to be, I think, for us to be instructive to. That's just because you know what happened to the job. <laughs> but but the fact, I mean, you know, this is even much more extreme uh, to the point of hatred. And I just wonder how he could not know. Or that's the only clue that maybe he did know, or maybe Joseph knew. The fact that he says, "I will go," because maybe Joseph knew this could end up bad. I mean, maybe not. Probably didn't have an idea it would be as bad as it was. Yeah. He knew it could end up bad. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. You may be. You may be right in that. Uh, uh, it really is hard to know. It is hard to know exactly how how much they sensed of what was wrong. I I think Joseph uh, and and clearly clearly since the scripture tells us his brothers could not speak to him on friendly terms, Joseph had to feel that and had to know that. On the other hand, I think Joseph, as a young man of the age seventeen, is a bit naive because what we discover when he arrives. To, uh, to to see his brothers, what is he wearing? He's wearing the tunic that is so offensive, okay? You would think that he would have enough common sense when he's going to visit his brothers not to wear this tunic, which is just kind of flaunting in their face uh, uh, the promotion that he's gotten from dad. So uh, so that's a good question, and I think you may, that, that may be a good observation. Okay. He is by himself, because otherwise, how would they have managed to pull this off? <laughs> yeah. Now I want to think about one other thing about Joseph, and and this brings up the question that I asked earlier. We have these words that he spoke, but what we don't know from the text here is what did Joseph say when he was grabbed by his brothers and stripped of his tunic and thrown in the pit, and and then in that period of time, however long it was, when he was down in the pit and and anticipates that he's going to be left there to starve or die of thirst, or die of exposure, and he's in the pit, and his brothers are up there. What is, what is he saying when he's being pulled up out of the pit and sold into slavery to the Midianites or Ishmaelites? Those two terms are used interchangeably in the passage, as you'll notice. Uh, how is he, uh, what, what is he saying? What do we know about Joseph? And you see, it, sometimes we have this kind of hyper-spiritualized view of things, and we have a hyper-spiritualized view of people in Scripture And it might be easy for us to assume that since Joseph had these dreams that God was ultimately going to promote him to this position of honor, that Joseph just kind of sailed through this whole experience with no problem at all. You know, no, you know, just no sweat. You know, his brother strip him of his tunic. They throw him in the pit. They threaten to kill him. They sell him into slavery. And Joseph just kind of sails through this and just goes, "God's in charge, and God's going to fix all this." And so it's no problem. Do you think that's the way Joseph responded? If he's I don't think they looked like they were joking. <laughs> 
Yeah, let's look over to chapter 42. Uh, and, uh, and this is the testimony of his own brothers. And down in verse 41, and they're actually saying this uh, in Joseph's presence, although they don't know it's Joseph and they don't know Joseph can understand it. But they say uh, in verse 21, it says, Then they said to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, and yet we would not listen. Therefore, his distress has come upon us. Of course, we'll get to that part of the story later. But I just wanted to point that out because this is something else we learn about Joseph. And this ties in with what we've talked about that verse in Psalms about about Joseph where it says, until the word of the Lord came to pass, God's word tested him. Okay, and, and, and what I want to point out about Joseph and about the reality of spiritual testing is that is that even though Joseph had the promises of God, this was a terrible, terrible experience for him. And his brothers referred to it as the distress of his soul. And I think it's important for us to be realistic about about our spiritual lives and the spiritual journey that God has us on and about the promises that He gives to us and the promises that we possess. Is that we can have those promises and we can know those promises, but as we said, it was the very promises of God to Joseph that were His greatest test. But they only become our greatest test when we are driven to the extreme. And Joseph here is driven to the extreme. He's driven to this point where he is distressed in his soul and he is crying out to God. Or excuse me, he's crying out to his brothers and he's pleading with his brothers not to do this. We don't know what he said, you know, but I can imagine he said all kinds of anything he could think of to try and persuade his brothers, first of all, not to throw him into the pit and then secondly, not to sell him into slavery. And, and during that time that he was in the pit and his brothers were up there eating their meal, just having a great old time, what, what were the things that Joseph was saying? I don't know, but I can, hear those, I can hear those cries in the back of my mind, can't you? A man just, a young man just desperate and, and distressed in his very soul. Okay. And I think it's important that as we as we go through the story of Joseph and we see how many things he does right and how many times he, he, he is for us such a great example, I think it's important for us to remember that this was not easy for him. Sometimes we fall into this delusion that, that obeying God and trusting God and believing in His promises is an easy thing and it is not an easy thing. And the fact is that God allows us oftentimes to be driven to that very extreme in order to see whether or not in that extreme we will trust God. You see, it's very easy for Joseph to trust God that he will ultimately be promoted when he's wearing the regal tunic and he's standing at his dad's right hand. But it's an entirely different thing for him to believe that he will ultimately be promoted when he's being drugged to Egypt by ropes past Hebron. That's when it's hard to trust God. And that's when we prove ultimately in our lives how much we really believe God. Is when we believe God 
in those circumstances. And that's why I believe God allows in our lives oftentimes those utterly desperate circumstances to occur. Because it's there, as we see in the case of the life of Job, it's there where our faithfulness to God is demonstrated. Well, then we have Reuben. And Reuben is really an interesting case study, right? What was the last thing we encountered with Reuben? Yeah, he had sex with his dad's wife, with his dad's concubine, okay, with Bilhah, okay. That's the, last, that's the last thing we saw, and it's just briefly mentioned, but we find out later that dad takes a great deal of offense to that, okay. And, and, and so we see this really despicable picture of Reuben that we just looked at a few weeks ago, and now he's a hero. This is what I'm talking about, folks, when I'm talking about when we look at the biblical characters, how complex they are. They're not these simple black and white characters, but they are complex people. And really bad people do some really good stuff and some really good people do some really bad stuff. And that's one of the things that speaks to the truthfulness of Scripture is that we find out that Scripture portrays to us people as they really are. And we know that from our experience, right? That people are complex. And, and so what we have with Reuben is we have this guy who, who has done this really horrible, despicable thing and now he's portrayed here in this part of the story as a would-be hero. Now, as it turns out, his plan doesn't work okay, uh, because of his brothers. But, but he is the one that says he rescued his brother. And in fact, he did rescue his brother. He did save his brother from death. Okay, Although he didn't manage to rescue him entirely, he did spare his life. Okay, By his willingness to stand up to this mob mentality that's going on with his brothers and say, this isn't right. We can't do this. Let's just throw him in the pit. And what he's trying to do there, of course, is he's trying to appease the wrath of his brothers and buy a little time so that he can rescue Joseph and restore him to his father. Now, why is Reuben doing this? <laughs> why? How is it selfish? Okay. Okay. I... Uh, he's, he's a politician. <laughs> okay. You know, I think, I think both things are going on here. I think Reuben really does recognize this is wrong and is not to be done. But we have to acknowledge that Reuben has a great deal to gain if he can pull this off. Because here a guy, here's a guy who is under the displeasure of his father and ultimately will forfeit his position in the nation as we will see when we get to the end of Genesis because of what he did with Bilhah. But if he can pull this off, what's going to happen? Okay, he's going to gain favor. Well, how's he going to gain favor with his dad? Okay, he returns Joseph, but there's going to be more that happens than just Joseph coming back home. Joseph's going to remember it. Well, Joseph's going to remember it, right? There'll also be consequences for the other brother. Exactly, exactly. Joseph, we already know, is a tattletale, right? I, I shouldn't use that term. You know, I, I don't know if it was just for him to bring that bad report or not, but 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 he's already been known to bring a bad report on his brothers. If he gets back home to dad, dad's going to find out what happened. 
And when Dad finds out what happens, Reuben becomes a hero. And so this is Reuben's one chance to get redemption in the eyes of his father. And that explains Reuben's response when he goes to the pit and finds it empty. Reuben tears his garments. He goes to his brothers and he says to his brothers, the boy is not there. And then what does he say? What's he say? Well, okay. What does he say? When he says to his brothers, the boy is not there, then what does he say? As for me, where am I to go? Here he had an opportunity to redeem himself. Now, whether that's whether or not I would characterize that as selfish or not, certainly, certainly he had some, some self-serving possibilities there, but, but it was the heroic thing to do. It was the right thing to do. And, and so, he's had a chance to redeem himself, but now, not only has he failed in, his, in this one chance to redeem himself with his father... But because he is now the oldest and is the one responsible, his father's not only going to hold the case of Bilhah against him, but the case of Joseph against him and Joseph's death against him. And so Reuben is desperate. The thing that strikes me about Reuben here is that it's just that it's too late. He's just too late. You know, there are some times when we just we do some things in life. I'm not wanting to say here that, that that it's ever too late to be forgiven, because obviously it's not. But but there there does come a time in our lives sometimes when it just becomes impossible to reverse the temporal the temporal results of our actions, and 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 so it is with Reuben. It's just too late. He wants to redeem himself. He wants to somehow change the situation with his dad and this is his chance but it's just too late and sometimes it is and that's why we don't trifle with sin because we never know when it's going to be too late to set it right not too late to be forgiven by God but too late to set it right in this world well so then we have Judah and I don't really have much to say about Judah at this point I just want to point out to you that here uh, Judah, who is the fourth-born child, fourth-born son, okay, that he now takes the leadership in the clan. Okay, he's taking the leadership with the other brothers, and he says, "Listen," uh, and he's very emphatic about it. He says, "Let's not kill him. You know, he's our brother. He's, you know, he's 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 of our blood. So let's not kill him." Joe, Judah realizes how wrong that is, and he. And, and so he suggests something else, but it's not generated out of pure motives. It's generated out of greed. What does he suggest? Okay, let's sell him. We see these Midianite traders, these Ishmaelite traders coming, and he says, and he gets this idea, and he says, well, listen, we can sell him. And, and then we haven't killed him. You know, we've gotten rid of him. We've, gotten, we've got him off our hands. We don't have to worry about his silly dreams anymore. And so we'll just get rid of him. Now, 
I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about Judah right now, but I want you to remember this, that Judah is the one who initiates selling him into slavery. Because Judah will be the hinge pin, the, the hinge, hinge pin when the tables get turned and when the situation is resolved. So keep in mind that Judah is, is a key character in selling him into slavery and Judah will be a key character in Joseph coming to understand that his brothers have changed. Okay. And then, of course, we have Jacob. And what is there to say about Jacob? I mean, we just see his... Uh, we see his... It's just almost impossible to imagine what Jacob is going through here. And, and the injustice of it to him. Now, Jacob's been wrong in the past. In fact, the parallels between what happened here to Jacob and what Jacob did to his own father are pretty striking. But, but still, the scale of injustice that Jacob experiences and doesn't know he's experiencing just staggers the mind. And so his brothers, uh, his sons come back and they bring the tunic and they, and they show it to him and he sees this tunic and he, and he realizes he's lost this son that he loves so much. And, and of course he hasn't. And as his brothers told him, had his sons told him the truth, he could have moved quickly to rescue his son. But of course, he doesn't have that option given to him. Good question. Good question. I, you know, uh, maybe yeah, I don't know. He doesn't tell us. He's not there. It doesn't tell us where he is, but it's just clear he's not there. He doesn't know about it because he, he comes later. So he might have been out with the flock doing something. Or, yeah, he might have been watching the flock or doing something. It's hard to know where he was. Okay. He had the opportunity well, you know what I think the fact I think that's part of it and I think part of it too is just the fear of man. He's just one against nine and no telling what they'll do to him. They you know, he sees what they did to his book. Yeah, yeah. 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 Kind of reminds you about like Watergate. Uh, yeah. Found out about that. Why didn't he cover it all up? Yeah. Yeah. Really. Good point. Good point. Well, those are a lot of things we could think about. I want to, at this point now, though, back up and just kind of look at the whole canvas. Okay. And and I I just want you to encourage you to think for a minute about all. All the evil that's going on in this chapter. You read this chapter from beginning, particularly beginning at the, where we started looking today at verse 12 and down through the end of the chapter. You read this passage and, and after a while it just gets overwhelming. We get, we get callous to it. I think partly because we're so familiar with this story. I mean, we've been hearing this story since we were, you know, crumb crutchers up in Sunday school, right? We've been hearing this story. And so, you know, it just kind of flows off the page to us. And, and 
we lose sight of it. So let's stop and think about it for a minute. We have, first of all, when Joseph appears there at Dotham, we have the plot of his brothers to kill him. When Joseph's brothers were plotting to kill him, let me ask you this question. Did God love Joseph? Then we have, he arrives at his brothers and they strip this beautiful tunic from him. And as I, and as I mentioned last week, this, this idea in the life of Joseph of him being given clothes and the clothes taken from him or removed from him, this is a picture of his changing status in life and it happens several times in the life of Joseph. And so, so he is stripped of his, he's stripped of his tunic, but more than that, he's stripped of this position of honor that he has in the family. Did God love Joseph? You say he did. Then we have him thrown into the pit where he is left to die of exposure or thirst or starvation or a beast finds him and eats him. Did God love him then? And then we have Reuben plans this remarkable way to save his life. And it fails. God let it fail. Did God love Joseph then? And then we have the brothers sitting down to eat a meal, presumably within earshot of the cries of Joseph. And they're sitting there eating their meal and listening to the cries of Joseph. And Joseph is beginning that long saga of starving to death. While his brothers eat a meal. Did God love Joseph then? And then we have the whole issue of the slave trade. The Midianite traders, the Ishmaelites coming. And and instantly, Judah knows, hey, these guys... These guys deal in human lives. They buy and sell people. Where was God? And then Judah concocts this evil plot to gain monetarily from what would be numerous years of suffering in the life of Joseph. Did God love Joseph then? And then ultimately, they finally sell him to the Ishmaelites as a slave. Judah is bound half, or Joseph is bound half naked and drug off to Egypt for a price of 20 shekels. Did God love Joseph then? The brothers return to their father and they bring this robe that they have dipped in blood and they bring it to their father and they say, we found this. Did God love Joseph then? Did God love Jacob then? And then they say to their father, examine it and see whose it is. And Jacob examines it and sees that it's his brother, his sons. And he says, 
My son has been devoured by a wild beast. Surely Joseph has been torn to pieces. Did God love Joseph then? Did God love Jacob then? And then, and then the hypocrisy of it all is Jacob goes into this intense mourning. His brothers rise up to comfort him. I mean, his sons rise up to comfort him. Can you imagine that? How evil! Like, I can't imagine evil like that. Where was God? Did God love Jacob? To let that go on? And then consider Joseph's journey into Egypt. His hands are bound and he's drugged behind some camel and he's drugged down that trade route. And as he's being drugged down that trade route along the Mediterranean, he looks off to the east, off to the left there, and he looks to the hills that separate him from Hebron. And he realizes he'll never see it again. He'll never see Dad. He'll never see home again. Did God love Joseph then? And then he's drugged down into Egypt and he's put on the auction block and his flesh is felt and he's examined and he's looked at like a piece of meat and sold for a price. Did God love Joseph then? And then Jacob plunges into this years-long period of mourning that lasts for 22 years. Did God love Jacob then? Every one of these things that I have just detailed to you is evil. There's no way around it. It's evil. It's just evil, folks. Now, it's so easy for us just to skip by that and get to the end of the story and and put it in another context. And we'll get there eventually. But this is evil, folks. This is evil compounded upon evil, compounded upon evil, compounded upon evil. Now, I asked you last week and earlier this morning, I mentioned it again. Had you been there in Jacob's tent when he was preparing to send Joseph off on this mission to Dotham, to Chechem and then to Dotham? If you had been there, knowing what you know now, would you have stopped Jacob from sending Joseph? Well, I mean, yes, we know that, but let's say you could. Say you could just simply say to Jacob, Jacob, this is disaster. He's going to be killed. Don't do this. Would you have done it? (laughs) Why didn't God? If you had the compassion to tell Jacob not to send Joseph on this mission, then why didn't God tell him? Why did God let it happen? Make, 
Pardon? Well, you do too. And we have some people in this class just say, yeah, I would have stopped it. But God didn't. It's all the changed parts in the end result that God speaks Exactly. This passage forces us to confront this. One of the most troubling problems we confront as Christians when we try and share with unbelievers is the problem of evil, right? Because this passage here is just a... I mean, all this evil that we've just looked at and there's a bunch of it and it's just overwhelming and it's almost terrifying to read to realize that people can be this evil and yet this is only a only an infinitesimal fraction of the evil that exists in the world. And so it's not surprising to us when unbelievers ask us, and sometimes believers, when they are overwhelmed by the evil around them, ask, how can there be a God if there's this much evil in the world? And what, so what are you suggesting? I'm thinking that God is also giving us a clue about what's going to happen before the second Okay. But what I'm trying to wrestle with is the question of you say God is all-powerful and you say God is good. Then why is there so much evil in the world? It's pretty late. Is God all powerful? God is all powerful, but man still has free choice. God didn't have to allow that. He didn't have to give us free choice. See, you see, I, I know what you all are trying to do, and you're right. I'm not going to argue with your arguments, but when we're but when you are confronted with overwhelming evil, sometimes you just go, How can there be a God? And there be this much evil in the world. And maybe you don't struggle with that as a believer, but I can tell you there are a lot of unbelievers out there who do struggle with it. And it's a legitimate question. If we don't answer that question when they ask it, they are not going to come to Christ. Well, also when it happens to you, I mean, it's easy for us to sit here and we can go to the theology that God has allowed free choice and man wouldn't be man if we didn't have free choice and Well, that's obvious, Charles, but why? Is he good? Is God good? Then why does this happen? You know, there's a, there's a balance in the judicial department that shows the balance of justice. And our whole society moves the, the mark over, so it's not balanced anymore. And then you rebalance it, and then you move the mark over, so it's not balanced anymore because we get so complacent in society 
if we set the mark and let the balance be, then we can see what is true evil and what is true good. And what if we keep moving it over to the whatever side is of balance, then then God has to come back and say, Now listen, this is where the line is. And that's well, that's, that's all true. That is true. You're right in that. But still, God allows it. Is it because if you're looking at it as eternally, <clears throat> is it better to go to hardship here or go to an eternal hell? When you change his heart, you know, it's just terrible. We cannot comprehend it. Is it worth it in the end? Well, this, this kind of touches on on what I think is the answer, one of the answers to this question, and I think it is a spectacular answer. I mean, not spectacular in the sense it's genius. I think it's a wonderful answer. I was lying in bed last night thinking about this. And I was just thinking, God is so good. And the, and the thing that was overwhelming me about the goodness of God was because I was thinking about how much evil there is in the world. I was thinking about how much evil there was in the world and I was thinking about this issue and thinking about the answers to this issue and I was thinking, wow, God is really great. Now, there are actually, there are probably more than two, but there are two answers to this question, you know, the problem of evil. And, 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 and how can there be a God if, the, if there's so much wickedness and evil in the world? And by evil, we have both natural evil, earthquakes, fires, famines, things like that. And we have moral evil, like we've been reading about in this chapter, okay? And, and both of them fall into this category, okay? But the question is, why, why does God allow that? And, and first of all, I would, you know, the first answer, and this is more of an intellectual answer, philosophical answer, but it's a val- valid answer, and that is quite simply... Uh, you cannot have objective good and evil unless there is a God. You cannot speak of things being evil unless we have some objective standard outside of ourselves. And so to, to even point out that there is evil in the world is to acknowledge that there is one who objectively determines what is good and what is evil. That's the philosophical answer, but that's not the one that excites me. The one that excites me is comes out in this story, not here in this chapter, but later in the story. And you all have alluded to it and referred to it already. But it's a it's a thread that runs all the way through Scripture. Now, some of us here in the room said, well, we would have stopped it, you know, and it would have been pretty hard for me sitting there in that tent with Jacob. Not to say, Jacob, don't do this. This is this. This is going to, you know, you cannot believe the anguish and the suffering and the pain that you and your son will suffer if you send him off to check him. And some of us would have say, well, we would have stopped him. And others say, well, no, we know the end of the story, so we wouldn't have stopped him. Well, we know what God did, right? God didn't stop it. God let it unfold. Now, every one of the things I detailed to you in this chapter that we just talked about were evil, Right? So were they God's will? Well, they were not His active will, were they? They were not God's active will. He was not pleased with it. God's will is never 
Yeah, exactly. Okay, so his passive will does allow sin, but it's never God's active will. Okay, so so clearly everything that happens here happens contrary to what God would have preferred. And yet we know the end of the story. I'm going to jump ahead here, you know, so forgive me for jumping to the end of the story. But we know the end of the story and it's spectacular. This is why I love the story of Joseph. There are not many stories that you that you read that end so gloriously as the story of Joseph. And we know that. And so we discover something here in the story of Joseph and we'll see it as a thread throughout Scripture. And I summed it up this way. That the most wicked men carrying out the most wicked plans for the most wicked purpose still fulfill the purposes of God in the lives of the people He loves. Now, who did God love in this scenario? You cheated on me. (laughs) I was going to drag this out. But he loved Joseph. And he loves Jacob. But he also loves those ten murderous boys, men. And part of God's plan in allowing them to do what they did was he was going to save their lives as a result of the things they did. And Joseph sees that at the end. And Joseph says... You meant it for evil, Genesis chapter 50, but God meant it for good. Now, I think we need to, we need to understand what the Scripture really teaches us about evil. Is, I don't believe that the biblical teaching of evil is that God just allows it And at the end, he's going to take it away and replace it with good. Now, that would be pretty great in itself. But the biblical teaching of evil is far more glorious than that. It's not just that God somehow took away all this evil these guys did and put Joseph in this great place and, you know, and then managed to feed the family and all that. It's not just that. It's that God used that evil. As evil as it was and as contrary as it was to his purposes and his will, he in his providence and his sovereignty turned that evil into good. And yeah, all kinds of things happen out of it. Okay, Now, where is the ultimate example of that? The cross. There is no greater evil than when men conspired together and brutally murdered the Son of God. And in that very act, they effected their redemption. Yeah, right. 
you know, all that Christ dying for our failures because excuse me. Because the history didn't happen the way it did. Christ was then born into this world of the tribe of Judah. We had to have the nation of Israel and the things had to happen the way they did there had to be death in the world for him to die for us too. There had to be wicked men to nail him to the cross. Who would there have been to crucify him? And this is not just some incidental teaching of Scripture. This was so foundational to the teaching of Apostle Paul that in Romans chapter 6 he has to ask, Shall we sin more that grace may abound? Why does he ask that? Because what Paul has been saying is that all this sin and all this evil we're doing is actually going to result in greater glory to God. And so Paul has to address the question, well, does that give us a license to sin? Which he does in Romans chapter 6, right? Or in another place, Paul is talking about all the things that he's suffering and all the things that he's going through. And then what does he say about it? He talks about this momentary light affliction in weight in view of the greater weight of the glory of God. This is, this is all the way through Scripture. Is that, is that God has not only allowed evil, but He is good. And, and the greatness of God's goodness is that all evil, not just the evil in Genesis chapter 37, or not just the evil of the suffering in the life of Paul, or not, or not just the evil of the cross, but that all evil is somehow going to be turned to good. That's how big, how great, how powerful, and how good our God is. So what I'm saying is, when we think back, um, when we think over all the evil that, that is in the world today, and there's a bunch of it, and when we think about all the evil that's happened, both natural evil and moral evil, that's happened since, since the fall in the garden, all of that evil is not just evil that God's just going to set aside and say, okay, I'm done with that, now I'm going to start doing good stuff, but all of it is ultimately going to somehow be turned too good because God can do that because God can take wicked men doing wicked things for wicked purposes and cause it to work out for the great for his greater glory and for the purposes of expressing his love to those whom he loves as he does in the life of Joseph and all the way down through scripture we'll see example after example after example after example of that And so my answer to you, in part, on the problem of evil is, why would a good God allow evil? Because that good God is going to somehow turn all that evil into a heretofore unimaginable good. How does Paul talk about all that affliction? Momentary and light. In view of what? The greater weight of glory. And if, and as I was lying there in bed last night and thinking about this concept and thinking about all the evil in the world, we are so overwhelmed by the evil in the world 
that we see, that we know about, that we've read about in history, we're so overwhelmed by it. How overwhelmed will you be with the greatness of your God when you stand on the other side of the river and you see how He has turned every single bit of that evil to good? Isn't that exciting? Our God is so great. Now, that will give you something to think about this week. Okay? Well, next week, we'll go back and we'll talk about some more evil. We're going to talk about Judah's whole thing. Okay? So.